Hello and welcome to the Combat and Classics Podcast. This is Brian Wilson in Dallas, Texas. And this is Jeff Black at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland. And this is Lise Van Boxel at St. John's College in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So today we're doing Racine's Fedra. Uh, that's my best French accent that I can do right there. <laughs> and uh, Jeff is going to give us a brief summary and start us off with an opening question. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So uh, there's an easy way and a hard way to do this, and I thought I'd say the what I take to be the easy way because it would be a good place to um, touch base from time to time, and then I'll try my hand at the hard way. And you guys jump in if you have any corrections to make for me. Um, so the easy summary is this. Uh, Fedra, it seems to me, is a play about love and hate and about whether you can love and hate the same thing or not. Uh, and it has uh, some interesting answers to this question, which is one of the reasons why we're interested in it here. Um, it's also a play um, about virtue and whether virtue can control love. And because uh, we expect people in certain settings to be able to control their feelings for one another, we expect virtue to have this power. Uh, it seems to me worth uh, exploring whether that's the case or not. Um, but here's the, here's the hard summary. So uh, where is this happening? This is happening in Greece, in a place called uh, Trozen, which is in the Peloponnese. Uh, it's across the uh, gulf from Athens. Um, and unlike Athens, which is a big city, uh, the uh, Trozen in the Peloponnese is a kind of rural location. Uh, the when of the play is uh, the end of the heroic age of Greece. So the labors of Hercules have been accomplished, and the labors of Theseus, one of the characters in the play and another Greek hero, um, are nearing their completion as well. Uh, and these labors involve killing monsters and bringing criminals to justice, uh, basically civilizing the countryside. Um, now, there are four main characters, and there are four subordinate characters. Uh, the main characters are Theseus, as mentioned. Uh, he's a hero, and he's the king of Athens. Uh, then we have the titular character, Phaedra, um, who is Theseus' wife, um, and not the first woman that Theseus has uh, spent time with or had children with. Uh, our third main character's name is Hippolytus, and he is the son of Theseus, um, but not by Phaedra, uh, by an Amazon. Um, so Phaedra is uh, Theseus, I'm sorry, is, um, is Hippolytus' uh, stepmother. And finally, a uh, main character named Arisia, who is um, uh, a daughter and I think the last survivor of a line that used to rule Athens. Uh, so she has a claim on the Athenian throne, and she is therefore a declared enemy of Theseus and uh, Phaedra, and um, supposedly also of Hippolytus. And each of these characters has a kind of confidant. So um, Phaedra has a nurse named Enone. Um, Theseus has um, uh, a guy that goes around and helps him called, uh, I think it's called Panops. Um, and then uh, there's the tutor of um, Hippolytus named Theramen. And finally, um, uh, let's see. Oh, and Arisia has a companion named Ismene. All right. So, uh, Lise, did you want to say something? Yeah, Jeff, it might just, as we move forward in the conversation, um, uh, be worth noting that Theseus is regarded typically as sort of the founder of Athens in this regard. Um, he clears 
that part of the world of monsters and thereby allows for a rule of law. So they're living in a, um, at an interesting time where they've gone from a somewhat lawless world where sort of heroic types could exercise that impulse fairly freely, although um, not that many do. Her Her uh, Hercules or Heracles does and Theseus does. But now they're in a realm that's much more peaceful thanks to to those two heroes largely, and that is ruled by law. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. Uh, that also gives a segue to um, the action of the play. Now, briefly, it seems to me the action's driven by Theseus, um, even though he's not around for most of the play. Um, first, he's absent, and his son, um, Hippolytus, wants to go and find him. Uh, before he can leave, he confesses that he feels an illicit love for Arisia, uh, the descendant of the um, other Athenian dynasty that he's not supposed to uh, be attached to. We also learn that his stepmother, Phaedra, loves him uh, rather than her husband. Uh, so these illicit loves are confessed, and um, Hippolytus is about to leave to look for Theseus. When the news comes, the rumor comes that Theseus is dead. Um, And so this precipitates a kind of succession crisis in Athens, where the question becomes who will rule and who has a claim to rule. And there are three claimants, basically. Uh, Phaedra's son, who's very young, um, uh, Hippolytus himself, um, who is not, of course, the son of of Theseus' current wife, and then uh, Arisia, because she's descended from this family and has another claim to the throne. And uh, the the thought that Theseus might uh, be dead precipitates uh, people to confess their illicit loves uh, to one another. And so it comes out, as a matter of fact, that um, uh, Hippolytus loves um, Arisia. Uh, Arisia uh, apparently reciprocates this love. And it also comes out that uh, Phaedra loves um, Hippolytus, and Hippolytus is horrified by this. Um, So the question then becomes, uh, what's going to happen in Athens? And just as it seems that things are going to go Phaedra's way, right? In other words, the Athenians are declaring themselves for her son, uh, who is too young to rule, and so therefore for her, uh, another rumor arrives, and that's that Theseus is returning. And uh, this precipitates another crisis because Phaedra has confessed her love, uh, her forbidden love for her stepson, to Hippolytus. And so the question becomes, what is she going to do about this? And her nurse, Enani, comes up with a plan. Um, During their confrontation, uh, Phaedra has gotten hold of the sword of Hippolytus. She's going to use this as evidence to claim to Theseus that Hippolytus forced himself on her. He's the one who loves, not her. So they put this plan into place, and it leads Theseus to curse his son, um, Inani, the nurse, uh, very quickly uh, regrets this course of action. Uh, Phaedra, not quite so quickly, regrets this course of action as well um, and confesses what has been done to Theseus, um, who has returned. But um, it's too late. Theseus has already cursed his son. And uh, as a result, it looks like some kind of divine vengeance or some kind of monster um, combined with the work of some kind of god uh, puts an end to Hippolytus. So uh, that's my shot at a summary of the very uh, convoluted and complicated action of this play. Um, My question is a little bit more straightforward. Um, Racine, in a kind of introduction written to the play, said that this play is supposed to be a celebration of virtue. And uh, 
It's a little hard for me, given the fate of the various characters, Fedra, who um, lets uh, a plan go forward that isn't very, um, very good and ends with the, the death of Hippolytus, and Hippolytus himself, who is killed at the end. It's not clear to me that any of the virtuous characters fare very well. So um, my question is this. Um, uh, what virtue is being celebrated, or how is virtue being celebrated, and who's the person who shows this virtue in the play? In other words, who is the hero of the play called Phaedra? Was that the easy way, by the way, Jeff? You, you, you pitched yeah, the yeah, easy no, way and the hard the, way. Yeah, <laughs> no, that was the hard way. Oh, that was the hard way. Okay. The easy way is, is uh, love and hate. Oh, Can okay. they go together. Yeah, yeah. All right. Because we could answer that. What was your short answer to that? The easy question. Yes. <laughs> yes. Good. Okay, so we're done with that. We'll see you next week. With, uh, <laughs> right. uh, okay. Um, so the hard question. Let's just get ourselves sort of up and running with that question. Uh, let me start with a an observation that I think might help. Um, in this play, uh, well, it borrows on a play by Euripides named Hippolytus. So Racine chooses to change the name from Hippolytus to Phaedra. Um, and uh, he also speaks about some other changes that he makes. In particular, he claims he doesn't want to make Phaedra as distasteful or unattractive as she is in the Euripides version. Um, the other change he makes is that um, the goddess Venus, I think it is, um, I think it's Venus that shows up in the um, Euripides play does not show up here, although uh, she's invoked and Phaedra prays to her and does blame her at the end for Hippolytus's death at the hands of Neptune, who was invoked by Theseus to uh, avenge um, the wrong he thinks he's been done, or at least that he thinks his wife has been done by his son. So Hippolytus ends up getting killed by Neptune. Um, the absence of the gods here, I think, is important for, for this reason. There's uh, apparently, at least according to Phaedra herself and maybe Hippolytus, we can get into that, she thinks she has uh, done this terrible sin just by just by falling in love with Hippolytus. That is, not just the deed, or not even the deed, but the thought, the lust, the intention, the desire is a sin. And there is no God present who might be able to forgive her. So Racine, although using the Greek gods, is actually somewhat in a Christian context. That is, we expect in his world that, or at least some versions of Christianity, expect that one could ask for forgiveness and receive forgiveness. That's absent from the play. That's partly absent because Racine seems, uh, at least indirectly, to be dealing with a very strict version of Calvinism where your fate is just predetermined. So there's no way out. Um, um, and so he's writing against that backdrop, presenting a woman who really does feel that she's sinned, and, but is struggling mightily, it seems, to try and contain it in some way. So I just offer that as a way of trying to sort of add some more details that pertain to Jeff's question. There's this quote from, you know, and you guys maybe help me out because I always forget whose quote this is, if it's Kierkegaard or Kant, but it's, you can change what you do, but you can't change what you want. And I, you guys want to pick one of their, flip a coin. It's one of those two guys. They uh, both start with K. We'll just go with that. Just go with it. It's one of the Ks. Um, 
And I, I, I bring that up in like whenever I go to St. John's to do like weekend seminars a lot because A, it makes me seem smart and like I've read that stuff recently, even though I haven't. Except you have to remember the name, Brian. Yeah, I knew I have to remember <laughs> the name. Uh, that would help. Uh, and it also just seems glaringly true, right? One of those true truisms um, that helps frame complicated situations like this, right? And it's also in the, in the kind of question of virtue, right? How much is virtue doing, not doing what you want? And, and is, are the most, most virtuous characters, the ones that resist doing what they want the most? Yeah. Well, the distinction you mentioned in that quotation seems to me to bear directly on uh, what Lise was suggesting, the change in this play is from its Greek antecedent, right? So if the distinction is between doing and wanting, right? And if the Greek play was all about um, Hippolytus's chastity, right? In other words, his failure to act on desires, um, his physical chastity, um, which then is um, is besmirched by uh, by Phaedra's uh, actually sleeping with him, right? In in uh, the original play, in Euripides' play, um, here it's a question of thoughts, right? Because they don't actually sleep together, right? And so the question becomes something like this: If um, the first understanding of virtue, say, according to Euripides, is something like uh, purity of action or ability to restrain yourself from acting on things. Um, has this definition of virtue been extended to include thinking? What would that mean? And what is the virtue of not thinking about certain kinds of things or not entertaining certain kinds of thoughts? Why would we Do admire a person like that? Sorry, go ahead. No, so just two complications, one, one rising for Brian's uh, observation and then yours, Jeff. The weird thing is in the Euripides play, uh, although Hippolytus is very chaste because he dedicates himself to a chaste god, the people around him, the Greeks, are they criticize him because they think he's too extreme, right? That that he, they think there's something wrong with with being so opposed to your physical desires, and they keep saying, you know, you might be um, honoring the chaste god, but you're dishonoring. Aphrodite, right? I think it's Aphrodite. Mm -hmm. That's right. Um, would be Aphrodite. And since this is Euripides, who typically is sort of regarded as being on board with many of Socrates' thoughts, one might think that there's, uh, and Socrates, it looks like, is not totally dedicated to pure chastity. It looks like maybe we're to take that criticism seriously. Although I do think it leaves that Hippolytus in a no way out situation. That is, he can't, what would it mean to try to honor uh really sincerely a god that requires you to be chaste while also trying to honor Aphrodite. It looks like, I'm not sure he has a way out. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm really not, I'm not, I think that tragedy might be about the, the lack of way out. Um, here, Brian, you, you say, what do we think of somebody who, or is it heroic not to act on your desires? Or what do we think of that if I'm remembering your question directly? But the complication is tied to Jeff's observation about thinking. That is, she is such a complex character. We can't say she simply wants to sleep with Hippolytus. She's also the person that doesn't want to sleep with Hippolytus. So, um, Jeff, if I'm thinking about your question, what's the virtue being separate? Uh, celebrated, I want to attach it to the question of what a hero is, because mm -hmm. this human being uh, is, whereas Theseus was running around killing monsters in the external world, we now have a world where there are no more monsters of that type. He's cleared the world of them. Now it looks like they're, they're monsters in the consciousness. Right. So Ph Phaedra is both 
a kind of minotaur of her own mind, this lusty animal part. And she's the person who's who thinks that that part is somehow bad or can't be indulged even in thoughts. And so she's sort of, that aspect of her is chasing another aspect of her in the labyrinth of her own mind. And, mm-hmm. Right? So that's Ooh, it's extremely interesting. Ooh, worked homage in there, Elise. Very good. I did, I did. Well, because there's a scene where she confesses her love to Hippolytus, where she does something very interesting. And I think she actually shows herself to be... Um, as a new, potentially new type of hero, uh, uh, it's extremely, it's, um, I don't know if I want to say it's a first in literature, but it certainly takes an idea of the, the complexity of the self farther than at least most of the books we read at St. John's by this point, since we move sort of chronologically, at least in the undergraduate program. And that is, she confesses she loves him. She recounts... Um, an event with her sister, where her sister helped Theseus both kill the Minotaur, but then get out of the labyrinth by giving him a thread so he could find his way out. But she then replaces her sister with herself and Theseus with Hippolytus, although he would have been much too young to be doing this at the time. So now she, in a way, incorporates into her own mind a whole world. All of these characters become aspects of her imagination and her consciousness. Time doesn't matter anymore. Gender doesn't matter anymore. She says to Hippolytus in a complex move, she, she seems older than him, so sort of like a mother, but also sort of incestuous. She says, you know, well, I wouldn't want you to get hurt. Um, So I would go before you into the labyrinths and lead you there. So there's also some, some gender bending, at least of the stereotypes. She doesn't, she wants to protect him in her own mind. And I take it the whole labyrinth is a sort of sexual image. So she is suggesting that she could lead him into the kind of sexuality she's experiencing, this very complex sexuality. And then I'll add one more um, suggestion. I think I think he is attracted to her. I think Aracy might be a displacement of actual attraction for Phaedra. Um, so I just drop drop that on it. But I but then the question of what what constitutes the virtue, what constitutes the hero, even who Phaedra is, I think becomes much more complex. Well, there's also the examination of because it's it's in both characters, it's in Phaedra and Aresia of you can't have this, right? That that potentially part of the reason why Hippolytus is attracted to Aresia is because she's this kind of cast out from you know not society generally, but in in Theseus's mind. You know, she is, um, she, Theseus hates Aresia, right? Hate, hates what she stands for as this other kind of line of, of um, royalty, and I guess is threatened by that to a certain extent, so treats her um, very poorly, um, and also killed all of her brothers. And, and so the idea of being in love with Aresia is, is wrong, right? And so similar with Phaedra's you know, lust and love for Hippolytus, and then potentially Hippolytus is um, reciprocating that to a degree. So there's all these kind of like taboos of, you know, whatever you do, don't think about a pink elephant, right? And whenever you're pitched that, all you can do is think about a pink elephant. And so there's there's part of this, you know, kind of nature of man thing where it's, you know, you can don't think about the pink elephant. There's this, you know, you can change what you do, but you can't change what you want. And so I think what we're you know, at least what, what I'm curious about is just like how there, there's this other line in here that Apollotus um, mentions in Act 4. And he says, great crimes are never single. 
they are linked to former faults, right? And this kind of also sounds like the flip side of that is, you know, what Aristotle talks about in the ethics of habit, right? Of saying like, you know, being excellent and, and, and being happy is, is the result of habitually making kind of virtuous decisions, right? And on the flip side, habitually making non-virtuous decisions, habitually making smaller crimes leads to these greater crimes. So I'm kind of the wondering though, do we buy that in terms of Fedra, you know, she's, or do we buy that in general from all the characters? Have they made kind of small crimes that have led to these bigger crimes? I think we, we don't buy it. And maybe for the reason that we've uh, been trying to lay out, in other words, um, I think Hippolytus says that Brian, if I'm remembering correctly, in the context of trying to deny that there can be miraculous changes of character, right? So that a person who's one way can all of a sudden be another way. You need to work up to your crimes by degrees before you can do a great crime. But if I'm understanding what uh, Lisa's suggesting, um, I take it to be a suggestion that um, we're actually more multiple than we think we are. And that might mean that um, without a miracle, we could suddenly um, act in a different way. And that um, once we see this multiplicity in ourselves, maybe there's a, a corresponding virtue that somehow addresses it. Yeah. Um, and so I thought maybe um, I could just read the passage that, that Lise mentioned, and then I could ask um, what we think we're supposed to do about this multiplicity. Um, it's, it's a very nice passage in the French. In, in the English, it's quite interesting. Uh, this is around uh, 650. Um, Fedra says, uh, Oh, why were you too young to have embarked within the ship that brought him to our shores? You would have been the monster's killer then, in spite of all the windings of his maze. To find your way in that uncertain dark, my sister would have armed you with the thread. But no, in this design, I would have been ahead of her, my sister. Me, not her. It would have been whom love at first inspired, and I it would have been, prince, I whose aid had taught you all the labyrinth's crooked ways. Oh, how I should have cared for this dear head." A single thread would not have been enough to satisfy your lover's fears for you. I would myself have wished to lead the way and share the perils you were bound to face. And by the way, uh, the Minotaur, of course, is her brother, so it's all, all in the family. But yeah, so what's, what kind of virtue is this that maybe she's showing by saying that she wants to go first into this, into this labyrinth, which is in some sense her? Well, if it is her, then it's potentially her kind of quest for self-understanding. You know, she wants to understand potentially why she's doing what she's doing. She, I mean, she calls it madness at one point. She, she says to um, uh, Oni Oni, I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that right <laughs> now that I said it out loud. Um, we can say Inani. Inani. Yeah. She says I would to, just say Anon, but Inani. <laughs> she says to Inani at some point, I just had it in front of me, um, you know, you wish to serve my reason, I want you to serve my madness. Yeah. Right? And so she identifies this as madness to a certain degree to even want Hippolytus. And so I, I guess how do, how do we compare that to this um, passage of describing her in the maze. I guess, Brian, I, I wasn't looking at the madness being the desire. I was thinking the madness is the multiplicity. Um, so, um, or the, 
whereas Theseus seems to be a relatively simple character, that is, um, what you see in some respect is what you get in the external world. That's what Phaedra is not, to, to a high degree. And I don't know if I would say that her virtue is to understand the why of what she is, but, but maybe it, it might be the what, who she is, that she is willing to see, to look clearly at the multiplicity of the human being, at least as it has become. Maybe it always was, but was uh, nobody looked carefully at it. And she's inviting Hippolytus to see that also. Come into my mind and let me show you all the various human beings that I am, including being you. And so I'm mean, going to cycle back to Brian's question because I, I like the um, the directness of it. What does she want? Well, uh, I don't know if we can answer that because there's too many of her, right? It, that's why I, I wonder whether it's more like, who is she? And she's, what I said earlier on, she's magnificent. I think part of the magnificence is her ability not only to be all these multiple selves, to transcend time or to escape time, at least in a certain way, obviously not in a literal way, Um but also the courage to see I am, I have all these people or all these parts in me, and they all have different demands. Well, the talk that way makes it sound like um, she considers one part to be ruling, or um, may, maybe the safest thing is to say the part that talks is currently ruling when a part talks, right? And um, I just wonder whether, does, does each part want to be the only one so that there's a kind of analog to the external heroism where your job is to go out and kill the monsters and bring the criminals to justice? Or is the goal just to know the territory so you know the labyrinth, know it is finite? Uh, do you live in it? Uh, I, I, so what, what kind of image would be the, the one that's suited to the task of the hero? Um, she might not accomplish this task, by the way. I, I don't see a lot of signs of her success at the end of the play. Well, let me try a shot, a, a possible interpretation, and then we could disagree or expand upon it, whatever. But I'm thinking, Jeff, of your opening question, what is the virtue? Let's, let's try this. I'm disinclined to think this is a sort of a morality play. That is, you know, if, well, if one only went this way, one never would have had this problem. I'm also disinclined to think it's a tragic flaw play, right? Or this is a really good person, but there's just this one thing that would besmirch the character. So a, th a third option is this. Um, this type of hero, if she is a hero, and, I'm, and for the purpose of the hypothesis, I'm going to say she is, um, has a high degree of consciousness, more than anybody else, of her multiplicity. And she might actually also be complex. She is willing to see it, or maybe she can't help but see it. But in any way, she's deeply in touch with the, her, her passions and, and her thoughts about those passions. The virtue is the multiplicity and the willingness or ability to encounter it, to just live with it. Um, and living with it, one must necessarily be at a fight with yourself. You must be both the hero and the monster. And so that's the world you live in. And the tragedy, if I'm to say this is a new type of hero, is that you, you cannot um, destroy... Um, the monster without also destroying what's beautiful about this character or magnificent, namely the multiplicity. So there, so that Racine might be presenting us with a new, uh, well, let me just say it this way. The tragedy is to, that the magnificence cannot um, 
uh, you can't kill the monster without also killing the magnificence, that these two things somehow go together. And so we're left just sort of beholding them and watching the fact that they can't persist um, in these circumstances with that kind of complexity that we, I think, are, are impressed by. I like that, especially in terms of, you know, Jeff's kind of intro about the heroic age and Theseus, you know, like Theseus and Hercules to a degree were much more two dimensional characters, right? And their dimensions were basically sex and violence. You know, Theseus is kind of run around the world and killed monsters and gotten wives and killed some more monsters and got another wife. And that was just kind of a shtick. And that's not um, you know, something that has completely vanished from society or literature, right? I mean, if you think about like the American Western, or if you think about like the crime thriller, right? The, 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 the lone gunman out in the West, or, you know, the, the detective, the Dashiell Hammett detective, you know, alone and unafraid and also gets the girl like there's, so there's something simplistic and appealing in the heroic ideal. And then the counterpoint to that is Fedra, right? Is this character that contains multitudes and that is trying to figure it out themselves, um, but is also potentially going to destroy themselves, right? Theseus and Hercules only have to worry about monsters. They really don't have to worry about themselves. Um, but characters like Phaedra um, and potentially Hippolytus, who's this kind of like, you know, almost juxtaposition of both of those, right? He's examining himself. He's trying to figure out, he's trying to quote unquote, do the right thing. Um, but in doing so destroys himself to a degree. And so I guess I'm just wondering like, what do we make of those? You know, and maybe that's, you know, it's, it's not a morality play. It's not a tragedy play. It's, it's something that's showing the, the branching off of those two archetypes potentially. Mm-hmm. No, that, that does make a lot of sense to me, right? There's a sense in which Hippolytus is in between um, the superficial complexity of Theseus or thoughtless complexity or something like that. That might be a little strong, but and uh, Phaedra's thoughtful complexity and his is uh, the attempt to uh, be single, right? In other words, to cut off a whole side that he sees in his father and really uh, despises, right? Namely, his womanizing. Um, but you know, it does seem to me that there are, you know, so there's, there's one thing which is to say that Fedra is last in the series, right? That she's somehow the latest and maybe the most complex form. Um, to the extent that she's a solution, I'd like to understand her solution a little bit better. And maybe one thing I'd point to is it looks like Theseus's duality, that sometimes he's a fighter and sometimes he's a lover, gets him into some trouble in the kind of story that happens off stage in this play, right? He's helping his friend who wants to um, abduct somebody's wife, but the friend gets caught and uh, fed to the husband's uh, pigs, I think, something along those lines. So a terrible way to go. And Theseus has to watch this, and he's imprisoned, right? And eventually he um, uses duplicity to get himself out. Is is there some suggestion that... um, that thoughtless um, multiplicity, if that's the right word for Theseus, um, is just not good enough, right? That it's problematic. I guess I have two questions, Jeff. Uh, help me out with the th- with the thoughtless multiplicity, because I think I, I would have just said Theseus is simple. 
He's not divided against himself internally, or if he is, he's not conscious of it, which I think amounts to the same thing. So yes, he does what Brian said. He kills monsters and oddly um, seems to think that if you kill enough monsters, you get to to be a philanderer, right? There's a kind of economic exchange (laughs) between these things. But putting that problem aside for the moment or that that, uh, complication aside, um, which I I think Jeff, you're right to say is something we're we're invited to look at as a as a problem. I don't see him having a lot of interior what I'm going to call interiority. Yeah, yeah, and that's um, that's all I meant by thoughtlessness, right? That there's okay. no there's no thread, if I can put it this way, running all the way through his labyrinth. Right. Okay. So I'm just going to say I think he's he's simple, or, or yeah, um, and by that I just mean not. N- n- doesn't have multiple human beings or multiple entities uh, living inside him, so to speak. Um, then you said, Jeff, um, in what way is Phaedra a solution? I'm not sure that, I'm not sure that that's, uh, I wouldn't have said that she's a solution. I would have said we're invited to look at a new human condition. And let me use some other sort of psychological terms that might help. It used to be the case that the sort of heroic impulses or passions could be exercised in the external world. Once you have a peaceful condition, and particularly if you're a woman in a peaceful condition where you can't run around and be a man, although there is gender bending in this play, um, those drives or those desires um, have to act somewhere so they operate inside your mind. And that's, that's a new circumstance for, for human beings. That is that they, 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 they can't be their more savage, wild selves in the more, most obvious way anymore, but, there's, but they still have those aspects, so they, they're being expressed differently, and the play is suggesting in the mind here, consciousness. I guess there's a problem, though, because if, if, that's, if the proposition is you, have to, you can only express it internally, then Phaedra, by, by expressing it externally, destroys herself, right? That brings about her own destruction. So if she just kept this to herself... She would have been fine, but if she if she has both of these characters, if she has the multiplicity, and also is you know quasi heroic in that she's trying to you know come what may, consequences be damned, I'm going to express my love to Hippolytus, then you know she ends up dying as a result of that, and so it seems like that the multiplicity plus heroic action actually leads to self destruction, at least in the case of Phaedra. So. Well, she was destroying herself before she expressed ex- expressed it externally. So again, I don't I don't know that the play is saying, well, if she only did this, everything would be fine. She is dying or starving herself before she talks to Hippolytus because she's at odds with herself. She she is a and I'm going to go on a, a limb here, uh, interpretive limb. She is a beautiful disaster. That's what I was. I mean, that's what I was suggesting before. Is the is what. Racine's trying to explore, the disaster can't be resolved without destroying the beauty. It's one and the same thing. That's what's tragic. Well, I, go ahead, Jeff. Well, I was just going just gonna to push on this a little bit because a lot of the um, terms we're using right now are descriptive, but they abstain from evaluation. And I'm just wondering um, whether we'd be willing to say certain evaluative things. And let me put the question uh, this way. Um, I don't suspect that one can choose to be a Hippolytus or a Phaedra simply, but one can wish. And if one were to have uh, the choice of wishing to be a Hippolytus or wishing to be a Phaedra, does it make sense to say that we'd rather wish to be a Phaedra? 
Well, you'd have to know, the, of course, the standard of evaluation. Mm-hmm. So maybe if you want uh, a big, fat, juicy life of experience and wild passions, you'd pick Phaedra as opposed to more uh, the, the... I mean, Hippolytus, I do think, is repressing, to use a modern term, some of these things. Um, so I'm mean, going to go again back to Brian's earlier question, which does tie to your opening question, Jeff. I wonder whether she's a hero because, um, and she has, and her virtue consists in beholding what she is. Mm -hmm. Just that. So it's a sort of version of the old philosophic claim, know thyself. That's, that's where virtue lies. And I use lies maybe in a complex way. Um, that's, that's what virtue consists of is know thyself. Well, this woman knows herself. It's just that maybe selves. <laughs> it's kind of amusing that it's the Socratic dialogue, the Phaedrus, where Socrates says he doesn't know whether he's simpler or more simple or more monstrous than Typhon. That's right? right. And it looks like maybe this is something that Phaedra is confronting as well. I, and I'll add a detail, Jeff, that you touched on earlier on. As uh, uh, Hippolytus has this middle figure, um, so he is uh, well. Um, I don't want to say that he absolutely doesn't love uh, Arisi. That might be too extreme, although it's it's possible to me, but I, um, it would be a, a strong interpretation. But I think at the very least, he's confused. I think he is attracted to Phaedra. That's a forbidden love for him because it's his father's wife. And the way he deals with that is sort of trans, it just sort of places it instead on a different forbidden woman who's more appropriate because it's not his wife, and that's Arisi. Um, but after Theseus uh, curses his son and calls upon Neptune to avenge him. He doesn't want to kill his son himself, but he'll have Neptune do it. Um, That's what happens. And then Terramen comes in and gives the account, which is very painful to to Theseus. And what we learn is that uh, Hippolytus is a horseman. And of course, horsemanship is is a Neptune art. He's been, he's raised these horses since he was a kid. They're very well trained. They love him. He loves them. Um, and he's riding in his chariot along the beach, um, and things are very controlled. And then this this half-man, half-bull-like creature comes out of the ocean. The horses go berserk. He, you know, Hippolytus cannot control them, and they, they pull him out of the chariot and just drag him along the rocks until his flesh is all pulled off, and he's dying there. There's a final sort of love scene between him and Arisi. But that image of him in the chariot, I take it, is a pretty clear allusion to um, the Socratic or the Plato-Socrates metaphor of uh, the human soul, whereby you have the black horse and the white horse. The black horse is the, is the wild, passionate drives. The white horse is the one that's sort of supposed to be a little more moderate. And then the chariot driver is the one that's supposed to be in charge of all this. That gets overthrown with Hippolytus. So I wonder whether, if we're pursuing this interpretation, that's Racine saying something like, well, that might have been the old image of what it would be to be a well-put-together human being. I drive your chariot properly. Or at least it might be what most people think Plato Socrates was trying to teach. I think Plato Socrates might might think that's much more difficult than than the gentleman might think it is. Um, but that that image uh, is the one that Racine is rejecting in terms of the know thyself uh, imperative or command or desire. Instead, we get Phaedra. Yeah, it's tricky because Hippolytus is trying it seems to do the least harm, right? He, he kind of like, he knows that 
being banished, you know, is probably going to happen. I think that he, he mentions that before it actually happens. And he's, I think, kind of okay with it because he's, he's rather like, okay, I'd rather leave than have to deal with this whole thing and cause more destruction. So it's somebody who is notionally being virtuous, leaving her Eresia, leaving the woman he loves in order to not cause more harm. But harm is done to him. And so, again, we're kind of in this self-destructive mode where the people that kind of recognize who they are the most uh, end up destroying themselves, right, in Hippolytus and Phaedra. Um, I'm wondering, I guess, with that, you know, the, the only people that, that survive, you know, are the main characters are, are Theseus and Aresia. So what is, you know, is Racine trying to, explain something in in who lives through this we have the hero and then we have you know Aresia who's 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 fleshed out a little bit but not a ton so what do we make from those survivors well Brian let me let me pose this question as a way of getting at yours um I'm not sure that um, self-preservation is the name of the game of human life. That is, it looks like a couple of times now you've you've asked about this. It looks like, well, it's, if you self-destruct, that's bad. And in, in a certain kind of way it is, but you're going to die anyway uh, at this point, it looks like anyway, <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> at some point. Um, so I don't know if that's the question. I mean, back to Jeff's earlier observation of who what might one want to be. Maybe you want to live fully. Maybe that means being Phaedra. Um, or, so I guess I'll answer your question this way to be provocative, Brian, but I think it might also be true. The boring people live. No, I think that, I mean, that's, that's a, good, a good way to put it. But I mean, how Theseus doesn't seem that boring. You know, I guess well, that's my, my reply to that. He, he doesn't examine it, but he doesn't, you know, he, he seems, I mean, he seems to be doing okay, you know? Well, I guess um, if you know more about his life, I agree. In the context of this play, it just looks like, um, by comparison, he's, maybe I'll use the word flat, mm. right? Uh, he's flat here. I mean, I'll, cycle around one more time maybe this is premature but again Jeff's opening question I guess if I'm thinking about what might constitute virtue this might be helpful the virtue might be as I said suggested before um, the ability or willingness or maybe you have no choice but seeing what the complexity of what you are in all of its horrors and all of its beauty etc encountering that but knowing that you're you're all the parts of it therefore it's very hard to uh, sort of prioritize one part over the other although of course she does eventually kill herself and therefore kills the monster but also kills the the, the hero in, in that narrative um, but I do think she becomes uglier when um, she learn, when she realizes that Theseus has cursed Hippolytus, she thought that maybe he would just Hippolytus would just be banished, but that mm -hmm. surely his father would not kill him. But that's in effect indirectly what Theseus does. And when she hears that, she runs to Theseus and and she looks like she's trying to get some information at the very least. Um, but then she suggests to herself that maybe she would have confessed her crime. But in fact, what she does is she blames pretty much everybody else, right? And I find that 
to be maybe a moment that where she's uglier, which might in turn help us to illuminate um, when she might be more virtuous. What's the change that happened? Is there any grounds for my sense that she's uglier at that point? And if so, what's what are they? Mm-hmm. Yeah, th- this helps me see and maybe um, to some extent counteracts the sense I had that the play ends in a defective way, because I have always found that final image of Hippolytus confronting the monster and struggling with the god and being pulled to death by the horses as so impressive that it detracts from Phaedra's own end, which seems kind of um, a bit of a whimper by comparison. But maybe it's something like this, that um, it's not just that Phaedra is a yes and Hippolytus is a no, but the, um, the focus of the yes of the play, the thing that Racine wants us to see and maybe to some extent affirm, shifts from Phaedra to Hippolytus at more or less the point that you identify, Lise, right? So uh, we start by admiring and being interested in the beauty of Phaedra as this new kind of hero, but when she starts to blame others for her circumstance, uh, our attention shifts to Hippolytus, who actually um, dies at the hands of, uh, loosely speaking, at the hands of the monster he confronts. So maybe the confrontation is more beautiful, but he's the one who carries it out. So you're suggesting, Jeffrey, let me see if this is right, that although it looks like external action, he literally is riding his horses along the beach and the uh, the sea comes up and takes him. I take it the sea to be not only Neptune, but maybe a symbol of the passions, that that's ex- occurring in the external world, but it's also meant to manifest a transformation that's happened in Hippolytus. That is, yeah, he actually is confronting his own complexity here. Right. And there's a, there's an interesting ambiguity. I was looking at this detail to see um, if I remembered it correctly. I think it's right that um, he wounds the monster but does not kill it, but he makes it bleed. So there's some kind of um, deep encounter between him and the monster that maybe doesn't happen in uh, Fedra's own case because she eventually uh, turns outward. Right. Okay, so let's just make explicit what I think was implicit in your your comment about the the shift from Phaedra to Hippolytus. Namely, um, if she is uh, a hero and sort of magnificent because of the multiplicity, but also uh, representative of of the philosophic virtue as it is today, which is to know thyself in all one's complexity, that when she starts to blame everybody else, she she falls from that virtue because, in fact, what she ought to have said was, you know, I, I basically did this, and, and I also did not do this since I'm both the one that's trying to stop these feelings, but I also have these feelings. I mean, it would be, it would, there wouldn't be a resolution, but there also wouldn't, yeah, there wouldn't be a resolution, which, which is what she gives when she blames everybody else. Suddenly, the complexity is simplified, whereas with Hippolytus, he goes from wanting to think of himself as simple uh, trying to maintain a sense that he is a simple, um, but eventually seeing, perhaps in that final scene, that he's not, and then he confronts it, and he is destroyed by it. But I don't necessarily take the destruction to be uh, this a suggestion that that this was a bad move. Right, he's he's um, literally dismembered and maybe transfigured by the dismemberment. He doesn't even look like himself apparently at the end. Right, yeah. Layers and layers. I, I feel like this is a good place to stop. We're at about our time. Um, I feel like, do you guys want to ask like a, an ending question here? Because I feel like we've got a ton more that we could peel back here. Um, 
Yeah, this is a deep play. For me, the thing that still is on my mind is I'd like to understand Theseus better because this looks like a kind of multiplicity, but not the kind that's most interesting in the play. Yeah, I guess I'd go a similar direction and ask the question this way. I think we end up feeling quite sympathetic and sorry for Theseus. And I take it Racine intentionally moves us that way. And I'd like to know what he means by doing that. I guess my question would be, why is Phaedra kind of sick throughout the play? You know, she's introduced as very sickly, hasn't seen the sun. And at the end, she's dying of poison. Like, and it doesn't seem to be, there's no point where, where she is beautiful. Um, so I'm wondering, at least hypothetically, like physically, um, I'm wondering why Fedra kept her in this kind of constant sickly state and what he, you know, was trying to achieve with that. Anyway. All right. Good talk, guys. Good talk. Yeah, good talk. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, typical <laughs> boy, this might be too trite for everybody. Boy meets girl. Girl happens to be his stepmother who happens to be in love with her and he happens to be in love with somebody else. Who's she's both the maze and the monster. And she's yeah. the maze and the monster. I mean, it's like it's it's a three-camera sitcom. So um, we'll try to do something more complex next time. We're doing, uh, what are we doing next time, Aristotle's Brian? Ethics, uh, two books from Aristotle's Ethics uh, ah, next yes. month. And um, if you, we, we, we had you know bonus episode recently with Anne Kenningensdorf, so you guys can check that out if you haven't listened to it yet. Uh, on Transients is out as well. Um, and then next we'll be doing Aristotle and we'll also try to get a few more interviews out there because folks seem to like this. So we also have, uh, we also have Jeff's lecture. Oh, and Jeff's lecture. Frankenstein is posted. Jeff's lecture on Frankenstein. Um, Frankenstein was actually our most downloaded episode. So if you haven't checked that one out, it it seems popular. Um, you know, all, everybody's talking about it. It's so hot right now. Uh, (laughs) we should also say that Lise has a publication that just, Oh, and Lise has a publication that just came out. Lise, plug your, tell us about that. Plug your book. (laughs) Um, well, I was invited to a conference at MIT some years ago, um, thanks to MIT and Peter Thiel for funding that. It was put together um, by Bernhard Trout, Svetozar Minkov, Daniel Donison, and out of that conference came a book called The Mastery of Nature. Nature. So uh, a group of academics trace um, the philosophic or major philosopher's perspectives on what nature is and what the human being's relationship is with respect to nature, sort of from from classical Greek times forward through the modern era. So I did the Nietzsche chapter, uh, which is, uh, Jeff will like this, um, the secret teaching of transhumanism. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we're, we're thematic lately here at Combat Classics. So, um, so mastery of nature. <laughs> Uh, yeah, so check out the show notes. We'll put Jeff's Frankenstein lecture and a link to uh, the book with uh, Lisa's essay in it. So uh, thanks, Jeff. Thanks, Lise. Thank you, Lisa. Thanks, guys. Thank you, Brian. <laughs> yeah. And uh, we'll see you next time for Aristotle. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.